How's it going, everybody? Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. And if you haven't yet, do me a huge favor. It would mean a ton. Make sure that you subscribe to the show on whatever podcast listening device or streaming platform it is that you listen to this show on. Go and click that button, subscribe. And if you're really feeling like you want to be a good friend, send it to a buddy and let them know about the show. It's how it grows. It's how other people hear about it. And it's actually been a really cool thing to see how that's happened. Obviously, we promote a little bit on social media, but you know, scrolling through geography and I mean, we have people in Germany, Saudi Arabia, Italy, Indonesia, France, India, New Zealand, Spain, the Netherlands, Costa Rica, Denmark, Philippines, Ukraine, Luxembourg, UAE. I mean, it's if you're there and you're listening, I just wanted to give you a shout out. I don't know who you are, but leave me a comment. Come follow on social media at that curious Jones. And uh, there's a channel on YouTube as well, but I do appreciate you. And uh, I hope you continue to enjoy the show. My guest today is a designer ball python breeder. And uh, yeah, kind of crazy. I've always been into snakes my whole life. I've been infatuated with them. I used to catch them as a child. I grew up in Northwestern Pennsylvania. So a lot of garter snakes, and king snakes, and different you know, wild snakes. And there was a pet store down the road. I used to go and visit all the time and they had ball pythons. Uh, I've always been fascinated by them. And I recently came across a guy and he breeds really unique looking ball pythons with really cool genetic traits and patterns and colors. And I started to talk to him and uh, thought it'd be cool to have him on the podcast and really get into what now after learning about it is even cooler than I thought. I was kind of wondering if it was going to be, you know, not good to animals. And I don't, I don't know. He shared some stuff and seems like a cool hobby. He shared all kinds of cool stuff about snakes. And I really enjoyed having a conversation with him. Give it up for my guest, Justin Kabelka. But before we enjoy this episode, a big shout out from the sponsor, Action Specialty Roast Coffee and Natural Supper. Make sure you go to drinkaction.com, that's action with a K, and subscribe. Whether it's monthly or twice a month or every other month, make sure you subscribe for fresh coffee and natural supplements to be delivered to your doorstep. 20% off all subscription orders, Action is incentivizing you to make sure that you never forget to order your favorite specialty coffee or natural supplements. If you want apparel because you don't drink coffee and you don't believe in supplements, I don't know how you're awake and I don't know how long you're going to live, but that's cool too, because we have apparel. Go to drinkaction.com. You won't be disappointed. And if you don't want to sign up for a subscription and you still want to get a discount, use code word curious and you'll get 15%. Enjoy the episode. Justin, I mean, I appreciate it, dude. Again, thank you, Mike. Yeah, where are pleasure. you? Uh, where are you located at? So I'm in North Georgia, just a little bit above Atlanta. Oh, no kidding! I spend a lot of time yeah. in Atlanta. Yeah, I love this area. It's people think of Georgia, they don't they don't realize how pretty it is north of Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's really where you want to be. A lot of green. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so I, you know, I want to preface this for anybody that's listening. Um, 
you're a snake guy and I'm a snake guy, not anywhere near to the level that you are. Mine's more of just like a fascination since I was a young child, as I was telling you before this. And uh, Instagram, a lot of cool content out there, but I came across your social media page and uh, I really thought you had something cool going on. And it's just, as somebody who's been into snakes, I was like, I got to have Justin on and just understand what, after I looked at, it's a really in-depth world. And I had no idea that that was like behind what I see as like really cool design ball pythons in a pet store or online. Right. So um, really interesting yeah. in your story. Yeah. It's, 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 it's an incredible world that the, under the surface that, that most people don't even know exists. Um, and that's one of the, I love being able to tell people what I do for a living. I love it and I hate it because because they have no context for, for the answers I give. <laughs> so I, the way I introduce it is I am a um, designer ball python or designer python breeder. And like I, I do, I produce these amazing pythons, but the, the word designer kind of describes a little bit of what we do because we are, we are creating these amazing colors and patterns literally out of the ether like they don't exist yet and we're constantly making brand new ones and exploring what all is possible with these animals and it's it's amazing so is there there are kind of like uh, categories or um i guess uh, genomes or i i'm butchering this and i'm making i'm showing my sure. ignorance right but there's there's certain categories that you then kind of can get really granular in right so so the ways to look at it from a layperson's perspective <clears throat> is that of course, we have reptiles, right? And then we have snakes and then pythons. And when people hear the word pythons, you know, they're of course a type of snake. People think massive pythons that are invading the Everglades and they're going to eat our children. And that's, that's like, this, that's what the word python means to people, probably because of Hollywood mostly. But the, the reality is that very few of the python species are the monsters, like the big giant ones. Most python species are very, very, it's relatively small, like just like you'd find like king snakes and long snakes in your backyard. Most pythons are in that actual size range. And so I deal with the only one species, which is the ball python, which is out of West Africa. And it is, it maxes out. It really, they almost never get to be six feet long. That's like really, really long for them. And they're great pets. And they're, they're really, really cool from a pet perspective. But the best thing about them is that in the wild, they found all these really cool different variations of them that look different. So things like albinism, most of us know what albino is, um, piebaldism, um, these different colors and patterns that just naturally mutate in the wild. And somebody over there, be it a, uh, a native or just somebody who lives in that area, as you know, will get a hold of one of these, and then it'll end up being reproduced for that specific trait. Where in the wild, it's all very random. You'd almost never find them. Um, and so that, in a, in a nutshell, is kind of how this whole thing started. We started finding these amazing animals in Africa, and, and they got brought over here. And then almost 100 different mutations have been discovered in this one species. So we're not interbreeding different species. We're just stacking these really cool different variations together. And it takes decades sometimes to stack them. And you end up with animals that are genetically still just a ball python but look more and more and more and more crazy and different than you'd ever find in the wild yeah some of the things that you've posted i've i 
it blows my mind that it's real. Um, the color variations and just how symmetrical it all is. I, I want to kind of break this down so that I can get my head around it. So Python in and of itself, how many different species of Python are there? I wouldn't know, but I would guess there are probably at least 50 okay. different species. Okay. Yeah. Of different, of different, you know, types and then boas are like a, a different um, category than pythons, but, but um, they're not that, they're not that many, but very few of them are the big ones. Like we think about. Sure. How did you get into this? Like, because again, like there's the, I was into snakes. I didn't have any idea how I could have ever turned that into a, career other than the guy that showed up at my school with like Tupperware containers of snakes or the local pet store. Right. So I was just into it as a kid, kind of like you, I just thought they're the coolest thing. My parents were deathly afraid of any snakes. They were okay with reptiles, but if it lost its legs, it was suddenly evil. And, uh, and so I, I was never allowed to have a snake at home. I could have lizards. I had some frogs and a turtles. Um, and so as I started getting a little older, I, I actually started keeping them. As soon as I could have my own place, I started keeping snakes. And I got some of the cool king snakes, you know, the bright red and, and blacks. So I started keeping some of those and, and breeding a few of those for fun. Because the cool thing about animals, if you're really into animals, is the miracle of life where you get to make more of something you love. You know, you get to put them together and see that miracle of a baby hatching out of the egg. You know, that's so, such an incredible thing. So I started doing that as soon as I could. And then I started drilling down on this one species for these ball pythons because I thought if there's ever a way I was going to do this for a living, it would be on this new kind of, it was very emerging market at that point as far as people were finding these in the wild, these cool ball pythons. And I thought, wow, this is, this is everybody's favorite pet snake, the most popular pet snake in the world. And here we are, some really tricked out versions are being found in the wild. Nobody had ever tried to combine any of them yet. Um, and I, so I kind of got into it right at the cusp of that, just out of interest. It kind of hit my life, my life um, goals right at that moment of coming out of college. And uh, that's it kind of got this whole ball started. So this, this whole like color variation, that's something somewhat new then. Right. People have been keeping, you know, these things for a long time, but it started in the late, late nineties, people started finding out of Africa, you know, these people would we'd be importing um, ball pythons for the pet trade. And then one of the trappers out there who was responsible for importing a bunch of babies over here for the pets would say, you know, we found this one, it's just bright yellow. We don't know why it looks different. And, and they're like, all right, send it over. We get it. And, and, and for a while, no one did anything with them. Um, and they're like, well, we found another one that's got big, big white patches on it, or this other one that has really crazy striping or, you know, something different about them. And it was a while. There's a couple people in our industry who really um, put it forward, like, well, we should try to actually reproduce some of these unique little variations and see if maybe, maybe that's a genetic thing that could be reproduced. And we could actually have more ball pythons that have that look. And that's how the kind of the whole thing got, got going. So do you have a background in genetics or has this all been just learned through the process? It's learned. It's very, very practical, practical, um, just learning as I go. I've been doing it for 20 years now. So my mind is very, very familiar with doing this math equations in my head. Mm -hmm. uh, my background's in marketing actually. Um, and uh, that's lent itself well to, yeah. you know, to, to, to this as I got into it more and more. So 
how many times is a female ball python giving birth in a given year? Just once. Just once. Okay. Yeah. And how, they over how one, long? One clutch. Period? So they have one clutch of eggs. Um, and a clutch of eggs is an average of seven. So between like three and 15, um, average of seven eggs once a year, and they'll lay it usually in the late spring. Um, and so it's just a, a one-time thing. And it's a whole year of, of doing this cycle. You have to kind of like re, um, recreate those African cycles um, in order to create the, the right environment for her to do it again the next year. And that's really what it's all about. Yeah, I was going to ask you if how much of like mimicking different types of climate and, and all of those factors play in, especially when you're dealing with genetics. I, I don't know if that makes an impact as far as color and, and all that type of thing, but not on the genetics, but you know, of course, reptiles are a very different animal compared to mammals. And mammals will have, you know, of course, a cycle, right? The females will have a cycle that's on a set schedule of some sort. Um, and but reptiles, they don't have a cycle. The cycle is just tied into the weather patterns. And they, you know, if things are right, everything's right, they will, the females will ovulate once, typically a season. Um, so it's very, very different. And uh, if you don't do things right, the females will just never ovulate and nothing ever happens. And all your, all your time and effort and the males breeding them makes no difference in the, if you don't do it right. So for simple math's sake, if you have a snake that has 10 eggs in a year, what are the, like, what kind of odds are you working with if, and I would imagine it's different odds if that snake is showing those genetic traits, right? That's right. So it's, it's complicated because it, like you said, everything's a little different, but it's really common for us to shoot for genetics that are um, one in 64 or one in 128 or one, it, you know, it doubles every time you add a gene. So one in 256. You know, we did a couple of pairings last year that the odds of getting the animal we wanted was actually one in 512. Um, so we take 512 eggs on average to get that baby that we're looking for that has all the genetics in it. Um, and so it's really, really long shots at seven eggs a clutch. You can see how many, how many seven egg clutches it would take to get 512 eggs. Um, and so it's a very, very long, long process. And that's, that's the beauty of this um, of this as a hobby, as a business, is that it takes so long. It, it really favors people who are very, very passionate about it, who aren't in a hurry. They've been putting in many, many years of work. That was what I was going to ask. It's amazing that it pays off. Yeah, yeah. It's like I try to play devil's advocate, right? And it's like I, I look at it just from the fascination of snakes. I'm like, this is really cool. But then I can, I guess, understand where some people would have a problem thinking like, you're just pumping snakes out left and right. And it's, it's like, I was expecting you to tell me that, you know, three or four times a year, 20 to 30 snakes a time, it starts to scale when you start to think about it that way. Right. It's some of the other Python species are like that. Like the giant ones, they will lay 30 eggs a year, you know, still only once a year, but they'll lay large clutches. And that's kind of the cool thing about the ball python. That's why it's been such a wonderful animal to work with. It's kind of that perfect intersection between size and good temperament and these cool morphs and yet the difficulty level is also high and so somebody can buy just you know a couple animals and want to tinker with making it you know, interesting project whatever and um and by the time that just anybody does it in their house or, or for fun those animals will still be very rare because no one can make very many of them they're they're very slow to produce what's the average life expectancy 
That's a, that's a good question. Um, I've never had one die of old age yet. I and mean, I've been doing this 20 years. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it seems, from what I've heard is about 30 seems to be kind of the going number that people say, but I've not really seen any hard data to back that up. And I've heard of animals in their 50s in, in different zoos, um, ball pythons in their 50s. So they can definitely live potentially half a century. And would a female reproduce half of that time the full full length of their life or it's it's not like i said it's not studied yet completely but one of the one of those um case studies was a 50 year old ball python people that didn't lay so it seems like they're capable of of you know laying at any point in their in their life that's cr so crazy they're, they're very long they have a lot of longevity it's pretty impressive yeah you said something earlier that kind of caught my attention. I wanted to go back to it. Um, you said your parents were like deathly afraid and that snakes because they had lost their legs were evil. And I remember, <laughs> I don't know if this is familiar to you at all, but as a kid, there was a series, I don't know if it was discovery, um, maybe national geographic, but it was called predators. And it was no. like, a, I, we had like a new movie sent every month. It was like a subscription. Um, it was so cool. My parents got it for me. And one of the episodes was on snakes and they went through like a whole origin story of snakes. They talked about all kinds of different types of snakes. And it was very much like a national geographic video where there's like the voice in the background talking about it. But, um, the very beginning of that movie, they talked about the evolution of snakes and kind of the folklore or myth at all, uh, mythology around, uh, snakes and why they lost their legs. And I, right. I bring it up because I have a grandmother who's petrified of snakes. My wife doesn't like snakes. I don't have a snake because I'm just like, it's too much of an argument that I don't feel like I'm, it's not the best one to try to win right now. I'm going to get there. I'm working on it. But um, it, every argument that I've had, I'm like, what are you so afraid of? And nobody can really tell me. And it's like, it's almost like they don't want to admit where it's coming from because they know it's silly, but is it rude? Like, where does it come from, from somebody that's like in the snake business? Like, where does this fear and hatred come from? Yeah. My, my theory is that uh, to a large extent it's rooted in Christianity and Christianity, um, the stories of, of, you know, Satan in the garden of Eden and that being a snake and, and then it was cursed to be on the ground. Um, I, I think that's got to be the root of it. But I think really more, more than that, I think it really comes down to the fact that we rarely have positive interactions with snakes. Usually, most people's interactions are, first of all, the parents tell them they're scary. It's like past generation to generation. But then that interaction most people have is a startling effect where they're, they're in a situation, uh, hiking or whatever, and then they they discover a snake and it, it's just such a starving visceral thing in your body. I guess it is that evolutionary, like just reaction to say, yeah. Hey, that could be dangerous. That could kill me. And even, I mean, I don't have that much anymore, but it's, it's been, you know, many years of working with snakes. I don't feel that anymore, but I think it's even for people who know snakes, that startling effect is very, very strong in there. I think, I think if you don't go have some really good interactions with snakes along the way, then that becomes who you are, that startling nervous effect that it accumulates. I totally agree. The, the uh, evolutionary aspect of it, right? Just that humans 
and I think there's been studies that have even shown this different. I think monkeys have shown that there's these evolutionary traits that you, that definitely come. I think there was uh, they recreated uh, noises of like an Eagle and the monkeys would like hide in the trees because they knew like just through evolution, you know, they, they were supposed to be afraid of this noise and they, they were in captivity. They'd never been exposed to those things. So I, I do believe that in our history, you know, for sure. Keep those alive. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I saw, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's kind of timely. I was surfing the internet Sunday. There was an article about a 35 foot anaconda that was discovered in a mine somewhere. I don't know if you, did you see that? No, I didn't see that. It's, it sounds, it sounds fake. I mean, usually these, these articles end up, um, you know, exaggerating the details because there is no species on earth right now that is known to get over 30 feet. Um, in fact, anacondas themselves are not the longest species of python on the world. But usually in any story, the snake grows a few feet when in, in the telling and, and then a few more in the retelling. That's, that's, that's what I found personal experience. And would the largest be the Burmese python? The largest we, the longest we the reticulated, this is my, my understanding is the longest is the reticulated python, which I, I believe actual um, confirmed length, I think would be in the low 20s as far as length. Um, and then anaconda is known to be like the heaviest, like their anacondas yeah. are very thick and bulky compared to a, um, a reticulated python, which is very long and relatively thin by comparison. So different body styles, different types. Okay. And the right now in Florida, the problem is with the Burmese python, which right. is kind of that classic python that everybody's used to seeing that's probably what 10 15 feet long yeah they don't get they don't get i don't think quite to 20 um but they're they definitely get into the mid-teens pretty regularly and uh, they can do a lot of damage that's unfortunately yeah i i was like looking at something it said there was six thousand that they caught and that that was up 400 percent from the year prior and so they're like, really? don't be excited that we caught 6,000 because that probably means that next year there's going to be like 20,000 that we would be catching. Oh, no. <laughs> See, every so often when Florida gets a freeze, it really helps with those numbers because um, you do get a big die off on them. Um, but if you get a few years without any harsh weather, they really, they can bounce back. I know that. Um, there's, a, there's, there's Florida's become like an interesting, like, breeding ground for all the animals that aren't supposed to be in the United States, because it's like the most tropical environment the U.S. has. And then so many imports came through Orlando for decades, all the cool animals that were being imported for the pet trade or zoos or whatever coming through Orlando. There's a lot of breeders down there. And um, my understanding on the Florida thing, it's been blamed as far as, as far as the Burmese pythons, it's been blamed a lot on pet owners releasing pets, but I've also seen some studies that said that it's just unlikely that there could ever have been enough people releasing them in order for it to really take hold. But the more likely scenario was that Hurricane Andrew actually destroyed a large breeding facility of these animals, released a large number of them onto the edge of the Everglades, kind of at the same time where they could really kind of get a beachhead a little mm-hmm. bit and then start to reproduce. And here we are decades later with a problem that is not going to go away. It can, just, it can just be knocked down a little bit, but it can never 
never go away. Yeah, it's just so bizarre. I read a statistic that said that raccoon populations are 99% reduced in the last 10 years. It's a perfect, perfect size for a Burmese <laughs> to eat. Yeah. Perfect size animal. Yeah. It's, it's just crazy. And then, and then, you know, some of these other species like tegus and, um, you know, Cuban tree frogs and Cuban anoles and, and iguanas and monkeys. And I mean, people like to talk about the Burmese python, but honestly, there are dozens of species that are just breeding uncontrollably. So you, you said something there, right? So like the whole Florida, and I know uh, Tiger King's not based in Florida. It's, but I felt like even watching that whole documentary, it just made me feel Florida, right? It just, it felt like right. Florida. Sorry, people in right. Florida. Um, but <laughs> like being in the, in the exotic animal industry, albeit much different than big cats, what was it like for you? And did you have any impact is just whether it be added visibility or people just looking to have a problem with anybody who has to do with, because I'm sure you deal with that all, anyways, just anybody who's an animal rights activist that thinks that you might not be. Yeah, it's actually, I'm pretty sure that there'll be a version of uh, Tiger King about somebody in, in the snake or the reptile space. In fact, at the first episode of Tiger King, I don't know if you remember, but the the narrator and the filmmaker was there. He was actually looking, talking to a gentleman there about some some venomous snakes. And then a guy pulled up and he had a like a black leopard or something in his van. Yeah. And that's the first episode. And that's what got him onto the big cats as a story. But he was actually originally, in my understanding, making a, a documentary about reptiles and, and, and some of these breeders that are have these really crazy venomous reptiles. And so it's just a matter of time, I think. Um, and it certainly, it certainly casts a spotlight on anybody who is, um, has these exotic animals in a way that is either exploitive to them or potentially a threat to the population or to the environment. And it's certainly, I mean, we would like, we would like it to see the end result bring out good best practices from everybody. But what it tends to do is, is kind of show only the very, very worst side and then cause a visceral reaction for the public that says, well, really nobody should be doing this. They're basing it on you know, one story, one situation. It's, it's, un it's unfortunate that, that that happens that way. Is it a highly regulated space? Like, do you have to deal with a, a lot of regulations? Not with, not in Georgia with this species. Um, in most states, they have different, every state you go to, you're gonna deal with different rules. Now in Florida, it's relatively regulated. Um, depends on the species, but if they have a, if it's a species that has a decent chance of becoming a problem in Florida, they are really cracking down on it, which I think they should, honestly. It makes it makes sense. I just they just need to make a, a a mechanism, I think, for for people who are doing it really well to be able to continue. But most most people need to crack down on. I think. Um, but it depends on the state. Like here in here in Georgia, you can't you can't catch a, a box turtle outside. You're not allowed to. But you can have a rattlesnake, right? <laughs> you can catch a rattlesnake outside because that's considered a nuisance. But you can't catch a box turtle. And you, uh, you can have a ball python, you can have an exotic non-venomous, but I can't have a cobra, of course, not that I want a cobra, but it's, it's just interesting, these rules, and they're all based around, you know, the individual states, and we have to have a license in order to reproduce them, we have to have a license in order to ship them, and there are some good licenses there to kind of make sure we're doing it on a positive level. Yeah, <clears throat> that was, 
when I, uh, I was in high school, I moved for a year uh, to my aunt and uncle's house. They lived outside of Pittsburgh and changed in scenery for me, bunch of reasons. And when I was there, I made friends with this kid named Zach and his, I forget his last name, but he was really big into snakes, ball pythons. And that's kind of where I got my very first indoctrination to the, like he had a clown of some sort, or I think it was, I think that's what he called it, a clown or something like that. Um, and this kid was like, like, Hey, do you want to come over to my house today? I have a snake that should be getting here. And I'm like, you're, you're ordering snakes online. So this was probably like 15, 16 years ago, but he was, that would have been a very expensive snake too, 15 years ago. It would have. Yeah. Yeah. He, I mean, he had a basement. He probably had six or seven different snakes and he'd call me and be like, Hey, I'm going to feed a snake today. And I just, he always, he knew I was into it. So he would, you know, give me a little, little taste of the world, but I remember looking at these things and just being like, how in the heck does anybody create something like this? I mean, it's just spectacular. I was so fascinated. It's, it's amazing that it exists. And most people don't realize at all that, that there are people making designer snakes. It's pretty, pretty wild. So where I was wondering, and I'm assuming this probably hasn't been experimented, but like we're on the precipice of like all kinds of really crazy gene modification technology. Is that something that this is ultimately going to go into where people have the ability to create these variations? Because you're saying earlier, it's like one in 512. And I imagine there's times where you can get really lucky and maybe you get that variation that pops up like in the first 50, but then there's probably the flip side of that where one in 512 means you might be waiting for 700 just because the odds shake out that way. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know where it's going to go as far as gene modification. I think the technology would have to get a lot easier in order to make it financially viable for somebody who want to do that to a ball Python. Um, right now it's, the numbers are long, but we do narrow down the numbers as we go. So we, as, as, every time you add a gene, you make it a little bit easier the following year. So we have a way to modify it down slowly. So it's not impossibly difficult. Um, but I just think, I think that the amount of cost that would go into setting it up so we could do it, um, actually edit it on that level, would also take a lot of the fun out of it, I think. And so much of this is just that whole, we're, we're trying to do something that's never been seen. And as soon as you can guarantee that it'll happen, and that, that I lose a lot of interest at that point, that's for sure. What's the current like drive? Is there a specific trait you're going after right now? So every year we, we're always going after like dozens of different things. We're always trying to like make, I probably make 50 different new types of things every year that have never been seen. And that's really what drives me because you know, it's, it's a combination of science and art, you know, of like math and creativity all in one, because we're talking, we're dealing with things that can't be changed. Um, like the biology of the animal, the difficulty level, getting them their behavioral side. And, and then of course the math, but if you can, if it all works out, you get to see a thing that's very artistic. It's something that you imagined in your mind and worked years to put these right little combination of genes together and only to find out what it looks like you don't know until you see it you may have an idea of what you hope it'll look like but then you see that moment of revelation in the egg and you're like wow i've been working for a decade just to find out if this is as pretty as i thought it was and it's just such a special moment when that happens 
have there been, I'm assuming, I mean, is there any of those that you can share that have been just like mind blowing and exceeded expectations for you? Sure. Sure. Yeah. So when I first started, I was trying to make a snake called a dream sickle and it's a beautiful, um, in fact, I posted one on my Instagram today, a dream sickle. Um, they're beautiful orange with white patches and they're just absolutely beautiful. And at the time they were the cutting edge of what anybody could ever make with ball python. It was the hottest thing, the coolest thing. There's only a couple in the world. And so my first chance to try to put some together, my odds were one in 16, which is relatively reasonable. And I had six eggs. I remember that the night they were hatching, the, you know, the one that one of the eggs hatched, started to hatch and I put his little head out. I'm like, that's the one, that's the one that I've been working at that point, almost eight years to make and that. And then here I am in this moment, experiencing this, this creation of life and this creation of, of a, a lot of work coming to fruition in that moment. You know, rarely in life do you get a chance to see a lot of hard work like happen, you know, come to fruition in a moment where you, from one second to the next, you, you experience success and you, and you can just take it all in all at once. And so that's what it was for me. I just danced, I did a little happy dance outside in, in the yard. My, and my wife said, you never celebrate this much at the birth of any of your children. I'm like, I, but I knew what morphs they were. They were not any cool morphs. They were normals. <laughs> you know, there was no, I didn't, it was just anticipation, you know, of that yeah. moment of, of getting something. And you know that you might have to wait another year or two years, three years. And then you realize that you don't have to wait anymore. You're, you're looking at it. And so that was really, once that happened to me, and that was like 2009-ish. And um, ever since then, I've just been chasing that every year. And and doing it on a bigger and bigger and more and more difficult scale, just chasing that moment of, of just incredible um, discovery and creation. It's, it's amazing. That would be so cool. So work like if somebody's listening to this and they wanted to go out and find a design, I mean, can they go right to your website and purchase directly from you or, or do you supply like a certain amount of people, your genetic traded snakes? Yeah, we deal directly to the public. So all they have to do is go to my website and, um, you know, look through availability and, and, and talk to me and find the right fit for them. Um, we tend to have, you know, the more really, really high end, we're number one in the world for making the craziest stuff. But to get your feet wet, the cool thing is, is that some of the genes like the Dreamsicle, which at the time when I first hatched it, it's probably worth 40 or $50,000 on the market oh, wow. back then. Right. Now, now we've moved so far past that and adding more genes to it and everything that regular dream cycles, which was the pinnacle back then. Now you can get it for a couple thousand dollars, which is still a lot for a snake. Don't get me wrong, but compared to what it was, they're all becoming much more affordable and people can have some of these really, really cool, amazing, beautiful genetics as a pet now on a pet level, which is only possible because of people out there making them. How many different breeders like you are there that are out there right now? That's a great question. Um, it's, it's really, really hard to say, honestly. There's, there's few that are, are doing it on the level that I am. I'd say like the numbers. Um, and uh, there's lots of people who are doing it for, for a hobby in their, in their house and just for fun. And they may hatch you know, five or six snakes a year or whatever, but they're doing it as a father. I always father some projects or just mm -hmm. personal hobbies and, and uh, trying to have this moment of creation in their own homes. Do you cut your eggs? I know, and because I heard this was like a really controversial 
thing. Yeah, it is. I don't know. If, <laughs> I didn't know if it was or if you were going to look at me like I was crazy, but I was listening yeah. to somebody talk about they they were like you know cutting the eggs is a really controversial thing, but it's you know you're doing it to give them the highest possibility of survivability and in, in hatching and you know. Right. So these these um, python species they they develop in the egg over about sixty days, but the last week or so of development, a keeper could take you know they're soft egg like 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 a like a thick fabric almost you could take and you can actually cut the egg open just kind of open it up and look inside without actually disturbing the baby at all because there, there's like an inner membrane that they're still in they don't even know that you've done that um and so you can do that very very safely with just absolutely no risk to the baby but what that's caused is people who have a hard time waiting because like I said, that, that moment of discovery, they want to experience it. They're excited to see if they got, they got the animal they got and, or they wanted people doing it earlier and earlier in the process or being more and more invasive. And so that has gotten to be controversial as people like, you know what, better for us, just let nature take its course. Let, let the babies let sit in their eggs for five more days, let them cut the, you know, come out on their own the way nature intended. Um, it's, it's safe for the baby and it sets a good precedent for the newer keepers. And I, I personally do that. I, I'll sometimes cut them after a couple have already cut themselves just in case there's a problem or some baby may not be able to make its way out on its own because sometimes you can save them that way. But for the most part, I'm like, just let's let nature be nature. We have enough interference as it is. Let's let nature do its thing. They're born with a special tooth, right? Right. They have an egg tooth on the very tip of their nose, just, just for cutting eggs and then it falls off. Okay. I did remember something from a while ago. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing to watch them cut cut their way out too. I, that's another reason not to do it for them because you get to experience that moment. Watch them cutting their way out of the egg first time. Would they all start to do it simultaneously? Like if you had a clutch of ten eggs and one started to cut, would then you see all the others starting to do that? They do it within the course of about twenty four hours. Oh. Between so, um, I I think that somehow they can detect the movement of the eggs next to them, and that kind of triggers them. So usually with once one head is out, you'll have, they'll all be out within 24 hours. They're so cool. I don't know. It's, it's such a different world. You know, it's, it, that's, that's what I love about it. It's, a, it's an alien world compared to the mammals and what we know. Yeah. I'm going to work on it, man. Maybe one of these days I'll be one of your customers. We'll have to, we'll have to reconnect on that. I think it's, uh, Absolutely. I think it's really cool though. It's, uh, it's always fascinated me. And so your website that people could go to is? Yeah, it's my name, jacobelgreptiles.com. But if you just type in Justin Ball Pythons, it'll definitely come up number one on Google. Um, you know, just remember your name, right? And Justin Ball Pythons. And uh, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll find me real fast. Okay, awesome. And then on social at the same thing, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, dude, hey, I appreciated a ton you coming on here and, and giving me a little bit of a snake fix. I uh, learned a lot and uh, I'm really excited to keep watching what you're doing and certainly looking to see the crazy shit that you're going to be hopefully hatching uh, in the near future. So appreciate well, thanks it. Thanks for inviting me on. Love yeah. talk, talking about it. Love, love sharing the news. I think, I think it's one of those things that people really, uh, the more people are exposed to it, the more people will find that there's no reason to be nervous about these animals and they're just, they're just such special creatures. You learn a lot about them. Oh, that's so true. You hear that grandma? 
<laughs> uh, thank you so thank much. Thank you, Justin. Most definitely, man. Appreciate it. All right.